Good morning. Jeff, if you want to feel young again, I could send you out to plant a church if you want. <laughs> Good stuff, man. Good stuff. Praise the Lord. Hey, I just wanted to mention uh, to you that um, on this uh, anniversary of 9-11, uh, a friend of mine actually uh, released this morning a... Um, a brief, I think, 17, 18-minute video of his testimony of how he came to Christ. He's currently the director of the Bible college that I used to attend, but he actually gave his life to Jesus at Ground Zero in between Tower 1 and Tower 2. And um, as he believed in that moment that he was going to die, he remembered the gospel that his mother had preached to him, and he cried out to God and asked for forgiveness and cleansing from his sin that he was in. So I posted a link to that video. It's great. It's very edifying, and I posted a link to it on my Twitter. So that's just at N Holdridge, and uh, you can find it there. But hopefully that'll be uh, edifying to you. And then also I just wanted to mention um, the uh, prayer meeting on Sunday nights. You know, the next three weeks. Um, you know, I would just encourage you to, if you can't, you know, be here for every single one of these prayer meetings over the course of the next three weeks. If you could try to come to just one of them. Uh, here in September, especially if you're a life group leader or a life group host and some kind of, you know, volunteer leadership in the church, to just come out and intercede and to cry out to the Lord. I realize, you know, Sunday nights we all kind of have our little routines throughout the week of different things that we do, and so Sunday night you've kind of got that slotted for something, uh, but maybe there's one of them at least that will work for you to come out and, and pray together. We're just meeting right in here, kind of replacing the 630 service just for the month to be able to seek the Lord in that way. So I'd love to have you guys come out uh, 6.30 on Sunday nights. All right, we got a lot of work in front of us. We're going to study today uh, Romans chapter 11. We've been, been moving verse by verse through uh, the book of Romans. And, and uh, here we're in uh, the section Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Paul is answering a question about the nation of Israel and who they are, what, where they came from, and what God has planned and in store for them. So let's pray. And uh, we'll get into this. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. And not just for your word, but we thank you for the, the power, Lord, that you display, the ability, God, that is yours. You're sovereign, you're an authority. You have, Lord, ability that is so far beyond our ability. And so, Lord, we just humbly come to you this morning. We pray that you'd teach us and instruct us, Lord, that you'd help us as we wrestle, Lord, with your word. Father, give me strength to proclaim and teach and declare uh, this truth, Lord God, and help me by, and aid me by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, it just comes into my mind as I'm praying. We are so thankful to you for this gospel that we are studying. We are so thankful for it. It is so worth proclamation. That's why, Lord, we want to send out church planters. And so, Father, we thank you for this great and glorious message that you have allowed us the privilege, the blessing of being heralds of. So, Lord, we thank you. And, Father, I just pray and ask even now that when Josh and Aaron go out, Lord, I pray, Father, and ask that there might even be some from this congregation, Lord, from this church, who, who the, whose hearts would be knit to them and go with them, Lord, to help them in the work that you have in store for them. So we pray for that, God. We pray for the communities that they're going to impact, and we ask, Lord, and pray that you'd move mightily, Lord, uh, in their lives. So we thank you, Lord, and we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd help us again now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I've always, um, you know, I've really loved the Old Testament, and uh, you know, you guys know I grew up in a pastor's home, and I remember when I went away to uh, Bible college, I remember a conversation I had with my dad on the payphone uh, there, where I was talking to him, and uh, after, you know, hearing teaching on the Old Testament in school, uh, I remember saying to him, like, Dad, I, you know, this is awesome, and I wish you'd have told me more of these stories, you know, and more of this stuff, you know, I just, I feel like I'm catching up, you know, and trying to learn all this. But I've just, ever since then, I've just always really loved the Old uh, Testament. I love, I love the, of course, the heroes of faith, 
and uh, I loved seeing uh, God's plan for the people of Israel. Uh, but I really love seeing the faithfulness of God to his people, even when there's rebellion uh, in his people, because I can so relate to that. He's so faithful to me, even when uh, I am rebellious and stiff-necked before the Lord. So here, uh, though, in, uh, and we have to remember that, right? When the church began, the Old Testament, those were the scriptures for the church. And those are our roots still today. All right, so we now have the New Testament as well, but our roots go back into the Old Testament. All right, so today, Paul is going to kind of answer the question, well, what about the people of Israel, you know? He asked it at the beginning of chapter 9, and he talked about what they were like in the past, that there were some in Israel who believed they had faith, like Abraham had faith, and it was accounted to them for righteousness. But then there were some in Israel, like we learn in chapter 10, who thought that through the keeping of the law, external things, that they could be accepted by God, and that's never the way or the pattern of God. God gave them the law, gave them the tabernacle and the temple and the ceremonies and the feasts and the festivals as an expression outwardly of the saving faith that he had given to them, that he had accepted them, called them, that they were his people. But they began to reverse that, like we talked about last week, and they began to think, if we do certain things, then we get God's righteousness. And that is never the way uh, that it works. So at this point, there's a question. Does God have a future for the people of Israel? And that's where we're at uh, here in Romans chapter uh, 11. It's a big chapter. We've got a lot to do. So let's get into Paul's first question in verse 1. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? You know, has God finished with the nation of Israel? And Paul, of course, emphatically, and there's an exclamation mark, at least in my English translation, says, by no means, you know, absolutely not. God is not finished uh, with the people of Israel. The church has not replaced her. God has a glorious future in store for, for her. And so he says, by no means. Now, he's going to hold out some evidences of that, right? And the, a couple of the evidences are going to be theological or biblical in nature. But the first evidence is very personal. Let's read it together. He says there at the second half of verse 1, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So there were Israelites who came from Abraham, Isaac, then Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And then Israel, or Jacob, had 12 sons, and one of those sons was Benjamin, and Paul is saying, I'm of that tribe. So here, right off the bat, Paul is saying, okay, you want to know, is God finished with the people of Israel? And he says, no way. And then he holds out as like the first evidence himself. And he just says, look, I came from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm an Israelite. I come from the tribe of Benjamin. And so here's an evidence that God is not finished with the people of Israel. I myself got saved, and I am Jewish. Now that might be all Paul is trying to say uh, there in verse 1. Just simply saying, oh, you're wondering, does God save people who are Jewish? I'm Jewish, and I'm saved. That might be all that Paul is saying. But he might be actually alluding to something even deeper than just the fact that he is Jewish and he has salvation. Uh, in the Old Testament... It seems clear that God has a glorious future for the people of Israel. Uh, places like the book of Ezekiel, uh, there are promises of a future restoration in Israel, which include a temple and the worship of God. And then not only there in Ezekiel, which they have not yet received, and then not only there, but in other passages of the Old Testament, especially all of the prophets, just as you read through them, you come to this understanding Man, God has some beautiful things that he has promised the people of Israel that when he spoke them, they have still not come to pass. So bear with me, but Paul, when he got saved, he's just cruising along. He's like spiritually dead. There's no life. In fact, there is obstinance against God. And then God wakes him up and he sees clearly and he gives his life to Christ. In the New Testament, it appears that that is the kind of thing that is going to happen someday to the nation of Israel. 
that there will be a moment where there is revival in the nation. We're going to see that at the end of this chapter. Uh, In the book of Acts, the disciples before Jesus ascended asked the question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus, rather than saying, no, there is no restoration of the kingdom for Israel, he just said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But there seems to be a future day where something powerful will take place amongst the people of Israel, of uh, Abraham's uh, family. Notice this from Zechariah 12, verse 10 to 13, verse 1. He says, a day is coming when I, this is God speaking, will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and crying out or pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over, for, over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, there will be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And up to this point, we've not seen a fulfillment of that prophecy. There is a day coming where it's not just going to be with borders and a nation and politics, but where sin and uncleanness is dealt with amongst the people of Israel. That seems to be what the prophet Zechariah, amongst other prophets, is looking forward to. And so Paul is going to write about that. And so I wonder, when he says there in verse 1, and I realize I'm in verse 1, and some of you are panicking right now, you're kind of nervous, you're like, it's a long chapter, you're only in verse 1. You could be a little nervous. Don't be a lot nervous. You could be a, I'm a little nervous, okay? So we could be nervous about this together. But I wonder if when Paul holds out this first evidence, he's not just saying, hey, you're wondering, does God still deal with the people of Israel? Look at me. I got saved. I wonder if he's foreshadowing and saying, there's a day coming when the people of Israel will, like I was, be cruising along, without much of signs of life or devotion to the living God. Israel right now is mostly secular. And then one day, God will wake them from their stupor, and there will come into their hearts this love for God and a belief in her Messiah. So I think that might be what Paul is hinting at when he talks about himself. Now he goes on to say in verse 2, kind of his next evidence, he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. You know, he called them, he foreknew them, and he would, of course, saw that they were going to uh, attempt to be justified by their works, but he still called them. They were still his. So he says there, continuing in verse 2, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? He said, and this is Elijah praying in the book of 1 Kings, he said, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him, to Elijah? Verse 4, he says to Elijah, I have kept myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, Paul says in verse 5, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is would no longer be grace. So Paul here holds out the biblical illustration of Elijah. You guys know about Elijah. You've probably read his life and story. I like sharing about Elijah and teaching about Elijah. I spent a whole summer on him and Elijah and Elisha a few years ago. But uh, I love talking about Elijah, and he's a fascinating figure. And he ministered in a time in Israel's history where, by and large, they were rejecting God. And after an incredible victory over the prophets of Baal, where God poured out his fire from heaven and consumed the sacrifice that Elijah had set up, Elijah ran from that scene and went up into the mountains. And he cries out to God in prayer. In his prayer, you may may have prayed a prayer like this. He said to God, I'm the only one. I'm the only one devoted to you. I'm the only one in all of Israel. And this wasn't just him kind of like saying, I know there's others, but I'm the only one. He had gathered everyone together and he'd searched and preached for years and he's saying god here's the conclusion i've come to there's no one else devoted to you 
I'm the only one that's a true, legitimate worshiper of Yahweh. Maybe you've felt like that before. Maybe you've watched friends or family members who have named the name of Christ take the Word of God, twist the Word of God from its basic, straightforward meaning in order to make it more palatable or relevant in our modern times. Maybe you've seen that kind of thing. You've looked around and heard of that. You've watched denominations just wander from the truth and into liberalism. And you've seen all of that. And maybe you've said to yourself, I'm the only one. Or we're the only ones. Well, God had a word for Elijah. He said to Elijah, Elijah, you're not the only one. I have 7,000 in Israel. 7,000. In other words, he's saying, your calculator is wrong, man. I have 7,000 who are devoted to me just like you are. 7,000. That might be helpful to some of us to understand that God always has his work here on earth. He always has his remnant. He always has his people who are faithful, who love him, who are called and devoted to him. But here, Paul is using the illustration of Elijah to say, so, for Israel, God always has a remnant. So even now, when by and large the nation of Israel is not believing in her Messiah, there are always a remnant of believing Jews who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and as uh, their Savior. Uh, Paul, after he wrote this letter, most of us believe that Paul wrote this letter actually in the city of Corinth. And so after writing this letter in Corinth, a few years later, Paul would actually travel back to Jerusalem. And when he got to Jerusalem, you can read of this in Acts chapter 21, when he arrived there, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who'd become the apostle over the church in Jerusalem, one of the things that he said to Paul is, he said, you know that there are many thousands of the Jews who have believed. So that's a remnant. It's a big remnant. Paul is saying, no, God is not finished with the people of Israel. For one, he always has a remnant that he is working in and through. By the way, don't you love that there in verse 5 and 6 when he says that they were chosen by grace, and if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Uh, This last week, we had a dinner and a little night where uh, the life group leaders and hosts gathered together and just sort of had like a little rallying time before the life group quarter begins. And Pastor Matt was sharing from the book of Acts, actually. And he was talking about the grace of God that Barnabas saw in the church in Antioch. And he just gave this beautiful little devotional concept about cultivating a culture of grace. And I I just loved it so much and just thought, man, that's just such a beautiful word. And the idea here, uh, uh, if works enter in, if it's no longer on the basis of, of grace, then grace is no longer grace. If it becomes a works thing, it is no longer of grace. Once you foster a meritorious grace, it's not grace. That's a works kind of thing. It's hard for us to have a relationship like that with God. It's hard for us to have a relationship like that with each other. You know, I have a relationship with the waste management company. Uh, It's a deal that we make. You know, I pay them a certain amount of money each month, and then the other part of the deal is that I put my trash receptacles out on the curb. That's my part of the deal. And then their part of the deal, if I do that, then they come and they pick up my trash and they take it away. It's not a grace-based relationship at all. It's I do my part and they do their part, and we're happy about it, you know? God doesn't deal with us that way. As long as it is... Of works, it cannot be of grace. God looks at us and treats us in a gracious kind of way. Now in verse 7, Paul goes on and asks a second question. He says, what then? What's the conclusion? He says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Remember last week, we saw in verse 3 of chapter 10 that they were seeking to establish their own righteousness by keeping the law. And so Paul says, they couldn't find it. They couldn't obtain that righteousness by the keeping of the law because no one can. He says in verse 7 as he goes on, the elect, that remnant that he talked about like with Elijah, the, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Remember Pharaoh in chapter 9? God said that he hardened Pharaoh 
Eventually, Pharaoh came to a place in his obstinate rebellion against God and his unwillingness to allow the people of Israel to depart from him. God began to harden Pharaoh's heart. And as God was involved in Pharaoh, Paul here announces that God is involved with the people of Israel. He talks about a hardening that comes upon them. Now, we scratch our heads at that a little bit, and maybe we say to ourselves, surely that can't mean what I think it means. Well, Paul, just to make sure that we know it does mean what we think it means, he goes on to quote a few passages from the Old Testament. Let's read it together. Verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, verse 9, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Here we're learning a little bit of what hardening looks like in the mind of God. Hardening includes a spirit of stupor, like you just can't think straight, like someone who's inebriated. You just can't even think clearly. And then secondly, verse 10 Their eyes are darkened and they bend their backs. That's what hardness looks like in the mind and in the heart of God. Now for us, again, like I said, we kind of scratch our heads at this. God, what what do you mean? What do you mean that you hardened the people of Israel? What do you mean that you would do that? And how do you harden them yet still hold them responsible for their disobedience to the gospel. That's the phrase that he used in, verse, in uh, chapter 10, the disobedience to the gospel. And the answer, I think, is in the mystery of who God is. You know, God is beyond you and I. He's above us. He sees the end from the beginning, and everything that he does is just and right and good and true. In fact, what we know of God is that he is not only fair, but he's gracious and merciful. We know that by looking at the cross. Is there anything fair about the cross? Is there anything fair about the gospel? There's justice, but I doubt that any of us are going to feel for all of eternity that what we've received from Jesus was a fair deal. We're going to be all for all of eternity singing of mercy and singing of grace. So we know that that's how God operates. And so we know that is clear to us. And so when we see something like this, we have to remember God is gracious and God is merciful. But Paul actually begins to answer that question in verse 11. Notice what he says. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, did God let the people of Israel stumble and grow hard in heart because he wanted to just completely end them and destroy them and do a new thing and begin the church? Is that what Paul believes? Is that what God was doing? Well, he says in verse 11, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, I want you to think about this. Paul had seen this in his life and in his ministry multiple times. In fact, four times in the book of Acts, it tells us that he would go to a city And his pattern in most every city that he went to was to find the synagogue first, the Jewish synagogue. And the reason that he would do that is because he was a certified rabbi. And in the synagogue services, there was always a point where they gave an opportunity to any certified rabbi who wanted to, to speak, to share a scripture, to share a word. And so the book of Acts tells us that in that moment of the synagogue service, Paul would wave his hand to get everybody's attention, and he'd say, yeah, in fact, as a rabbi, I do have something that I'd like to share. And then he would just blow them away by telling them, hey, this Messiah that you guys are talking about and waiting for and looking forward to, he came. And everyone's like, what? He came? And then he'd say like, yeah, us and the Romans, we killed him. What? We killed him? But don't worry, it was God's plan that he would substitute himself for our sin as he died and he rose from the dead. Early believers saw him, preached him, and I am one of his disciples even today. That was Paul's method when he would go from town to town. Sometimes there would be a reception of that message. 
Sometimes there'll be a partial reception of that message. But oftentimes, four times like I mentioned in the book of Acts, the, there's large-scale rejection of that message. And what Paul would do the next week is that he would go and preach that same message, but he would preach it to the Gentiles. And what Paul is saying here is that that pattern is what is happening in a large-scale kind of way. Through their trespass, Israel's trespass, Israel's disobedience to the gospel, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So now the church is made of Jew first, but also the Greek. So, but he says there at the end of verse 11, as to make Israel jealous. In other words, our salvation, Gentile salvation, is meant to provoke Israel to a good kind of jealousy that she might love and seek for her Messiah. That, I think, gives us a good little devotional thought to consider at this point of the text. And just to ask the question, you know, is my life, is what I've received from Jesus, the peace that I've gotten from Him, the grace that I've received from Him, the presence of mind that I've received from Him, the washing and the renewing of my mind that He's given to me. Is that attractive? Is it enough or is it something that might make a person jealous in a good way? In the sense of saying, what is happening there with you? And why is there this clarity? And why is there this peace in your life? I don't think we always have to wait for that kind of question in order to preach the gospel, but it's beautiful when that question comes and allows us an opportunity to share for the, uh, the reason for the hope that's inside of us. But Paul says that we, the church, uh, partly exist so as to make Israel jealous and look for her Messiah. Now in verse 12, let's read this together. Paul says, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking, verse 13, to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some. For their rejection, verse 15, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So Paul here clarifies his attitude. He says, okay, I know that I'm an apostle to the Gentile world. I get that. I'm a Jew. I love the people of Israel. I think in some ways Paul would have confessed, I wish I was an apostle to the Jews. He says, I know that God made me an apostle to the Gentile world. That's why he went on missions trips. That's why he went as far as he could to as many places as he could. That's why when he would stay in a city for 18 months, it was a long time. All right, so we get that. Paul says, I'm doing this though. I'm magnifying my ministry. I'm going hard to preach the gospel to the Gentile world, including you, Roman church. I can't even come visit you, but I'm going to send a letter to you. I'm using the technology of the day to get this word out and do the ministry Jesus gave to me. The reason I'm doing it, at least part of it, is because I want to provoke my countrymen, Paul says, to jealousy so that I might be involved in the salvation of at least some of them. We respect that kind of zeal from Paul, don't we? All right, now, he goes on, though, and what he's saying here in verse 12 and in verse 15 is he's saying, I want you guys to think about something, Gentile church. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about how they disobeyed the gospel. They trespassed. And as a result, we got the gospel. So they disobeyed, and as a result, he says, we got riches from God, riches for the world. Reconciliation, verse 15, of the world. Then he asks a simple question at the end of verse 15. What then will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Paul is projecting forward here. He's looking backwards and saying there came a moment when the Messiah came to his nation and his people, and they rejected him. And if their rejection of the Messiah led to the gospel message, that blessing, 
Just imagine what it will be like when they are fully included in and they receive their Messiah. Now, we might be sitting here today going, well, how does it get any better than what we got? I mean, we got the gospel message. Well, I think, this is the way I think about this. I think about how when I came to Christ, there's so much that happened to me that was immediately internal and continues to be very internal. The peace, the reconciliation, the joy, the satisfaction, the wisdom, the direction. Like I said earlier, the renewing of the mind. You know, things like that happen inside your life. But we have that internally. But man, we still live in this physical, messed up world. There's still heartache. There's still pain. There's still loss. There's still racial division, divide. There's angst. There's war, there's famine, there's all this stuff. And we're trying so hard to make it better and improve things and stuff like that, as we should. We're called to be good stewards of the world that we live in. But there still is like, for all the peace that I have with God, man, I just look around and it's like, this world is just buck wild. What is happening? When will that be solved? And I think that's what Paul is alluding to when he talks about the moment that Israel receives her Messiah. It's like a domino ticking to where Christ will return, and we're going to see the visible rule and reign of Jesus Christ. You guys know this if you've listened to the way that I teach the book of Revelation. It's all recorded online and everything. And you've heard me mention this pretty frequently in various teachings. But I believe that the Bible teaches that a moment is coming where the Lord is going to take us, his people, home to be with him. I do believe that there will be a seven-year period of great difficulty, wrath, tribulation here on on the earth where God directly deals with the affairs of man. He's dealing with them now, but indirectly, but then it will be very directly. And then at the end of that seven-year period, Jesus will visibly return. We will be, I believe, with him at that moment. And then when he returns, I believe he will rule with a rod of iron for a period, like it says in Revelation chapter 20, of 1,000 years here on earth. That's what I believe, and this is how I teach, even though, as I've shared with you guys before, I recognize that there are varying varying, uh, beliefs about the way things are going to all unfold and wrap up together. And as I've talked to you guys before, we need to hug each other and love each other. These aren't things that are worth... uh, you know, getting in fights about in the parking lot or anything like that. But I'm just telling you, this is how I believe the New Testament unfolds, and it's impossible for me to read the Old Testament without looking forward to a lot of those elements because I believe that there's so much that was prophesied to Israel that is left undone that must still be completed by God. But to say all of that, I just imagine that moment. When Jesus does, I mean, at Christmas, we, talk, we sing the Isaiah verses, you know, the wonderful counselor, almighty God. The prince of peace. Not just in here, but just out there. That's incredible. How much more will their full inclusion mean, is what Paul is saying. It's like something to get excited about. Paul's looking forward to a moment. All right, so he goes on in verse 16, and he talks about how it all works. He says, If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now what he's saying there is he's pointing to Israel, and he's saying, look, I mean, you read the Bible, you see like the beginning of them, the root of them, or the first fruits of them, they were gods. So the whole thing, all of Israel, they all belong to God. And he's got a plan. He hasn't let them go. But he says, verse 17, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Here, Paul uses the analogy or illustration of an olive tree, which is a little bit of a national emblem for the people of Israel. And he takes the olive tree, and he says there's a cultivated olive tree. But the branches were cut off 
so that you, O Gentiles in the church, you as a wild olive branch would be taken and grafted in to the cultivated olive tree. What he's saying to you and to me, I mean, part of what he's saying is, you just can't say stuff like, well, I just don't like the Old Testament. Because what he's saying is, that's your root. That's what you, O church, were grafted into. They were the start, and you are the next phase. You're not even the finishing phase, but you are the next phase. You were grafted in. And notice that he calls them, the people of Israel, all their roots, the heritage, their love for the scriptures, their love for God, he calls them the nourishing root. You know, for them, when they would read the Old Testament, read the Bible, it just was straightforward. For us, when we go back to the Old Testament, we have interpretive work to do. When I read about the temple, I know I'm not supposed to go into a literal temple and that that's been fulfilled and set aside for a moment you know things like that so there's work that i have to do as a believer as a member of the church to go into the old testament but those are my roots that is the nourishing root that i have been grafted into and so basically there paul tells us in verse 17 and 18 we are the wild olive shoot all right so you guys are wild i'm wild we were just put in and praise god we get to be a part of this thing is what paul is saying he says then you will say verse 19 branches were broken off so that i might be grafted in all right so this is like an arrogant uh profession you know it's saying well you know they were broken off they were hardened by god so that I could get in there. Like, I'm special, you know, kind of thing. My mom told me I'm a snowflake, and there it is, you know. Uh, so Paul says, verse 20, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. Why were they cut off? Why were they hardened? It was unbelief. They ceased to approach God by faith. And they've started to approach God nationally, by and large, by works. He says, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God, verse 21, did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And that, in case you missed it, is a warning. That's what Paul is doing. Now the question is, who is he warning? Who is he warning? It seems to me that just like with Israel, you had individuals who by faith, Believed in the Lord, received justification, salvation, righteousness. But then you have the general drift of the larger group over periods of time and years into a works-based thing before God. I think the same kind of concept applies here. I think Paul is looking at the church in its totality. And he's saying, look, large group, you're naming the name of Christ. The temptation over time is going to be to drift away from a simple gospel responding to the gospel by faith. And you're going to drift into form and ceremony, things that are outward. Rituals, experiences, uh, festivals, certain things that we do to earn God's favor. And it's true. You talk to some people today, they say, I'm a Christian. You say, why are you a Christian? Well, because... I got baptized at such and such a date. I say such and such prayers. I go to such and such church. And they list all of these things that they have done. Paul is giving a warning to that kind of mentality. And I think that Paul in his mind is seeing something bigger than just that tendency. Other parts of the New Testament seem to tell us that in the last days, many within the named body of Christ will depart from the faith. It tells us in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 to 7, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty and people will be, and then there's this long list of attributes, sins, that the church is going to get entangled in. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, Paul said, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So it seems like 
there will be a drift from the church, the named visible public church. Now, praise God, there will always be a remnant of those who are believing and trusting by faith. But we're, you should expect that you're going to see denominations depart. You should expect that you're going to meet people who have watered down or twisted scripture. You should expect that in one sense, because I believe that those days are not only here, but they are coming. Paul gives a warning to that mentality. All right, let's move on in verse 22. He says, note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, you know, from faith-based approach to him. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, you know, going to him by faith. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. He's talking about Israel. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be gathered back into their own olive tree? So Paul here, going back to the olive tree illustration, he says, look, you were a wild branch and the natural ones were cut off, removed, so that you could be grafted in. But don't you know that God has the ability to graft the natural branches, the cultivated branches, back in uh, once again. I realize that, you know, to think about a future almost nationwide revival for the people of Israel and a confessing Jesus as her Messiah, I realize that that sounds pretty fantastic which can sometimes be another word for far-fetched. But I want to remind you of the gospel that you believe. You believe that God became a man and lived here for 33 or so years, lived a sinless life and died a substitutionary death for all of mankind, went into the grave. We often preach, part of the early creeds were that he went and preached to those in hell during that time, and then he rose from the grave and then walked on the earth and appeared to his disciples, the church, for a period of 40 days and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's pretty fantastic sounding also, is what I'm trying to say. So for us to imagine, you know, it's just like, well, I'm sorry if it breaks your brain a little bit to think about that happening, but so does the gospel. And God is able, God has done it, so this is not beyond, I think all of us would confess, no matter what our eschatology, all of us would confess, none of this is beyond the ability of God. He can do it. All right, verse 25, let's close out our study together. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Now, we get excited when Paul mentions a mystery because in the New Testament, when he uses the word, he means we, we couldn't see this before, but now we see it. God's made it clear at this time. Here's the mystery, verse 25. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Remember that hardening we read about earlier in this chapter? Paul says here two things about it. Number one, it's partial. There's always a remnant who will believe. So we should expect that some would come to Christ from the nation of Israel. Not only that, or from Israelite descent. Not only that, but he announces that it has a time limit. That hardening has a time limit. It's partial, but it has a time limit, and the time limit will end when he says at the end of verse 25, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, when God is finished saving people from the nations, When every person out there who's going to come to Christ comes to Christ, at that time, God will turn his attention from the Gentile world and he will focus on his covenant people, the people of Israel, once again. And in this way, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So we know that Paul is talking about something that goes beyond just Israel having a land once again. It's beyond geopolitical. It's spiritual. I will take away their sins. 
As regards the gospel, verse 28, they are enemies for your sake. Paul had lived this and experienced this. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so now they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God, verse 32, has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Literally, what that means there in verse 32 is that God has taken all of mankind and he has locked them up, locked us up into the prison of disobedience. And what that's designed to do is to help us understand our need for forgiveness of sin, which will enable us then to approach God humbly rather than in an entitled kind of way, God, you owe me, you should treat me this way, but with humility to say, I need to be forgiven. Have you provided a way for me to be forgiven? That is the way that all receive mercy, is what he says in verse 32. All right, so after saying all of that, Paul has a simple response. Let's read it together, and this will close the study of Romans 11. And really, I think in one sense, the study of Romans 1 through 11. You've got to remember, Paul was writing this, actually speaking it out, and another man was writing it, as we'll learn at the end of the book. But... Can you just imagine what that was like? You know, sometimes I try to write things, and, you know, as I'm writing, it's like there's a process. There's a super rough draft that I'd be embarrassed for anybody to see. And then there's a time where you go back and you clean things up, add things. There's a time where you check your grammar and stuff like that because that doesn't come natural to me. And you just kind of clean things up until you have a final draft. And even then, it's humbling, you know, like here it is, the final draft, you know, and some people will go, that was the final draft, you know, kind of thing. But, you know, that, but for Paul, as he's transmitting this, as the Spirit of God is carrying him along, and as this is being written down, Romans 1 through 11, he just comes to this place of being overwhelmed. And he says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable or unknowable His ways. Now, obviously, Paul isn't saying God's just a big mystery. You can't know anything about Him. He just wrote 11 chapters about Him and what He does and the way that He works. But even at the end of all of that, Paul just comes to the conclusion, God, you're so big. You're so powerful. You're so wonderful. I can't even begin to understand how you do or why you do all of this. Then he quotes mostly from Job in verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In the book of Job, he suffered. God allowed it into his life, is what the couple, first couple of chapters of Job tell us. Job questioned God. How could this happen? What have I done? He sought to justify himself rather than justify God. He talked for a long time. His friends talked for a long time. A young man named Elihu talked for a long time. But at the end of the book, God talks. Twice he says to Job, dress yourself, gird yourself like a man. Now it's my turn to question you. You have questioned me, now I will question you. And God asked Job for a few chapters a series of questions. Where were you when I made all of this? Have you even gone down to the bottom of the sea? You know nothing about the galaxies. You haven't even begun to exhaust knowledge or information about your own planet yet. Did you create the animal kingdom? Oh, do you even understand the entire animal kingdom? And he just asked Job this series of questions until finally Job got to a place where he said, I know, this is from Job 42 verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no 
purpose of yours can be thwarted. He just comes to this conclusion of, God, you are who you are, and you can do anything. You can do whatever you want, and anything that you want to do, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That is the attitude that Paul is applying to Romans 11, Romans 9, 10, and 11, Romans 1 through 11. He's just saying, look, this is incredible. This is confusing. This is deep. This is accessible. This is exclusive. This is powerful. This is now. This is future. He's saying, it's all of this stuff. God, you're incredible. I could never do this. I could never dream this. I don't even completely get this. But God, I know that you, you're God, and you can do whatever it is that you say you are going to do. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. So I think we're supposed to be left with a little bit of humility at the end of Romans uh, chapter 11. It's a good place to be. All right, the reason that I taught you guys Romans 9, 10, and 11 in three weeks, uh, which is not advisable, uh, (laughs) is because I wanted us as a church to get the forest and not the trees. I realize that probably a lot of these concepts that I just went through over the last three weeks, where our heads are kind of spinning a little bit, these are concepts that are usually not talked a lot about, aren't incredibly popular uh, to address. So I just wanted to give us the forest rather than the trees so that we wouldn't just be blown away week after week after week. I just wanted us to see that big picture. So hopefully the plan was executed at least a little bit, and uh, you guys have been uh, blessed by it a little bit, uh, I hope. So uh, that's been my prayer as we've been going through this together. All right, let's close in prayer, and uh, next week we'll pick it up in chapter 12. Father, thank you uh, for your kindness, your love, and your compassion, Lord, towards us. And Father, we as we look at the world and nations, um, it brings us great comfort and assurance to know that you're able to take the mess that, that we very much have created, that we are responsible for, yet you are in the midst of it flexing your sovereignty and you are working your plan. Oh God, we thank you. We thank you for that. We thank you that you're so high and wonderful and beautiful. And we come to you with our little finite minds and we worship you, the infinite God. Continue, Lord, to teach us of yourself. Help us, Lord, to know you better than we've ever known you. We love you, Lord. And now, Lord, we just sing of you, of your glory. We just bask with our voices and in song in your majesty in your glory in your transcendence we're humbled by you that that you the god above it all would be personally involved in our little lives thank you lord we love you and we sing to you now in jesus name amen let's stand and sing to the lord